For December 15th, 2014, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 337. A great flowering of empathy and fellow feeling. Welcome to Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. From Los Angeles, I'm your host, Matt Rather. I'm here with Pete Fenzel. Hello, Pete. Hello, Matthew. <laughs> I didn't my, know. My presence on the podcast has been leaked early. I thought you were going to <laughs> I thought you were going to leave me hanging there from that pause. Illness thought that it could keep this man down, but he uh, he sprung up. Uh, like Lazarus from the grave. And if you are missing the overthinking newsletter, it is because I have been direly, direly ill. Like really not in good shape at all. And so, but I am coming back. I am not dead. The the rumors of my my uh, my death are vastly exaggerated. Coming out guns blazing. Yes, or firing firing with some moderate rapidity. Maybe not blazing. <laughs> we got Pete Fenzel. We got Mark Lee. Hello, Mark. Hey, praise and glory to our. Fearless leader Kim Jong Un <laughs> and his glorious Democratic People's Republic of North Korea. Tosun Mante, Mark is saying Monte. that because we suffered some downtime and overthinking it this morning related to our internet host, and we just want to make sure that we don't run afoul of of any organization out there that might wish to uh, that might wish to do anything nefarious against overthinking it. We're okay with the accidental downtime that's all we want we don't want any trouble uh with with you know the 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 our dear leader uh or his his glorious democratic republic democratic i thought you were just republic. get it right man <laughs> i thought you were just psyched that gangnam style broke the youtube counter <laughs> for number of views <laughs> that that could have oh, been yes yes the, the the fabulous rap video by kim jong-un in which he does the horsey dance <laughs> Yeah. Right. Yes, that's fantastic. Love it. Well, he did tame horses himself. They used to run wild and free along the yeah. Korean, the vast Korean plain before he rode. He tackled the first one, and with I his know. virility and, and great balance, it's amazing. That guy can do everything. Yeah, he's yep. like he's like Brian Boitano in South Park. <laughs> in the in the South Park eth- mythology, uh, and we have uh, joining us Jordan Stokes uh, from New York. Also, Jordan, it's great to have you always on the podcast. When you join us, it is an occasion for celebration. Oh, thank you, uh, Kim Jong Un. That's a get for us, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's it's really great. So uh, now, the dear leader himself. No, we don't have have Kim Jong Un, but we do want to talk about the uh, the Sony leaks. But before we do that, a question of the week. Question panel. Uh, in honor of Chris Rock's uh, return to the screen, which I guess has been uh, a last sort of overshadowed by all this Sony stuff, which is a, a shame because he was in the media a lot, writing some interesting and provocative stuff. Um, as a as a way to promote his the the film that he he wrote and stars in top five, um, he was uh, he wrote an essay in the Hollywood Reporter. He was interviewed by Frank Rich in New York Magazine. Um, there was a bunch of of Chris Rock media that that was around the release of this film, and and Mark and I saw the film, and I think I enjoyed it. And there are a lot of interesting things about it. Um, we might get to it in a minute. In a minute, after we talk about Sony a little bit, but uh, question of the week for you: In honor of this film, in which characters make lists of their top five top five uh, rappers, uh, hence the title "Top Five, What is your top five? You know, your personal top five something 
first in the alphabet, drink. Uh, the illness thought it could take him out, but he is back and stronger than ever. It's Pete Fenzel. Thank you very much, Matt. Okay, so my top five is somewhat motivated by some things that I have not been able to have during the course of my sickness. Uh, and so I'm going to say that number five is uh, Texas beef. Uh, number four is St. Louis-style pork. Number three is spare. Number two is short. And number one is baby back. And these are, of course, my top five styles of ribs, which I would just love. I would just love to just tuck into some ribs right now if my if my constitution could handle them. I have to roll a saving throw. That's for sure. Uh-huh. But uh, but yeah, short short is a surprise at two. You know that's one of the big surprises I think of the last couple years is just really the meteoric rise of short among rib types in my taste. <laughs> I don't know if you guys have also experienced this in your rib in your rib perusing. I know Jordan, you like ribs, right, Jordan? I do like ribs, but I think that I like you have reached the stage in my life where ribs is like a um, a stressing event, right? Like if I want to check if I want to check out whether I have a heart condition, they hook me up with some weeds and give me a big plate of ribs and see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I mean, well, you know, speaking of Kim Jong Un and the Democratic People's Republic of North Korea, uh, they were into short ribs way before it was cool. I'm talking, of course, about Kalbi, Korean short ribs. Oh yeah, Korean. Yeah, right. They have they have some good ribs too. They do. They also, do. Yeah. They're cut funny. I mean, they're cut across the. They're cut crosswise, right? So that you have you know three tiny little bonelets in your kalbi rather than uh, uh, you know rather than the uh, the rib running yes, the long yes, way. Let's let's not offend our North Korean brethren, right? There's nothing funny about it. It's just it's just different from can, how can, us can inferior I, Westerners are used to cutting it. Can I ask you like a sincere question about Korean culture, Mark? Yeah, yeah, please. Is there some sort of economic factor that has produced a cuisine out of Korea that seems to be so much uh, more it's, it's just so much more with beef than some of the other East Asian cuisines. So uh, it's, that's, it's a bit of a sort of a perspective issue there because um, Korea was a poor country for very many years and didn't have a lot of cows around right. because beef is very difficult to raise. Um, basically, it's a Korean, it's partly a Korean-American phenomenon and also paralleled with uh, the rising uh, affluence of Korea proper because Korean-Americans oh. come to the United States, beef is super cheap, um, and, you know, they open Korean barbecue restaurants, and it's like a good, it's like a good thing to serve on a night out um, as a special sort of thing. But it's not so special that it's completely ridiculously out of reach. So the sort of the enthusiasm for beef in Korean cuisine comes because it is a relatively recent addition to a Korean cuisine from which it has been largely absent. I wouldn't say largely absent. Oh. I mean, just like it, way back in the day, it was super rare. It was an incredible delicacy because right. it was so inspe- expensive. Right. Um, and then it sort of transitioned from there into sort of a more everyday uh, kind of treat. Right. Because so I, cause I don't, I don't think of Korea as a place having like wide ranching areas, like what, the nope. open range. No, <laughs> where the cattle drive are being driven by the dragon boats of the Chosan people. Right. As opposed to the chosen people. They are the chosen people. That's right. Uh, I've played 100%. my Age of Empires to the Conquerors. I know what's up. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for the shout out to the Chosun. Chosun oh, Monte. Yeah. Chosun Monte. Um, I thought, Jordan, when you said ribs is a stressing event, I thought that you meant it like you just you're going to have to deal with a lot of wet naps. You know, you're going to have to you're going to have to like really, really guard your clothes. like even to the point of perhaps wearing a bib in order to uh, in order to protect yourself from the the ribs. I think of it as like a hygienically stressing event rather than as a as a cardiac uh, event. 
Oh, Matt, you flatter me. The, the battle between my clothes and food scraps was lost a lot. <laughs> I feel like, like, like many bearded, like many bearded people, you have a you have a special awareness of uh, of small bits of food. Yes, and that special awareness is my wife telling me, "Sweetie, you got something in your beard." <laughs> That sounds. That almost sounds like uh, I, I was at a, a holiday party tonight, and I I observed a mother and teenage son together, like in the buffet line or something like this. And and the mother looked looked at her son and made I I I almost say derisively, though it wasn't. That's probably giving it. That's probably uh, too jaundiced an eye to look at it with. But uh, gave her son the the. Oh, I wish I wish I could convey this. Took took her two fingers and wiped off the corner of her her own mouth, indicating that he had uh, food stuck to the to the corner of his mouth. And it wasn't like, sweetie, uh, uh, sorry to interrupt you, and sorry if this is embarrassing. I just would like you to know. It was just like a wipe, wipe. You know, <laughs> that's. I feel like relationships really all relationships converge at the point of wipe, wipe, uh, <laughs> where it's like get that get that poop off your face. Um, sure, because like with. I have a very young child, right? And when he gets stuff on his face, even though he's too young to, to know or care, we're like, oh, oh, I'm sorry. You have a little thing here. Let me just get that for you, right? But a teenager, right? Imagine, you know, 17, 18 years into a marriage or, or a relationship, you're long past that phrase. Right, absolutely. Yeah, I spent the first two years wiping your butt and the, the next six wiping your mouth. You can wipe your damn self. <laughs> Uh, Mark Lee. I'm assuming, this is, yeah, I'm assuming this is what the Chris Rock movie was largely about, right? <laughs> anyway, uh, continue. Sorry. Mark Lee, uh, you, you uh, can go next. You can wipe your damn question. Uh, what's, uh, what is your top five? All right, all right. My top five. Dina Menzel. Kristen Chenoweth. Julie Andrews. Marty Nixon. Patty Pone. Number six, maybe Sutton Foster. If I get a number six, but... No, 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 no. My top five, you got it right there. You're six, you're six women. These are your top five uh, Broadway divas. Um, slash hip-hop artists, yes. Um, okay, so <laughs> just br- very, very briefly on um, what the top five hip-hop artists, uh, how that functions in the movie, and why I'm, uh, my commentary on it by naming Broadway female chanteuses uh, in response to that. Uh, is that like these characters? They it's it's important the context of it well because like Chris Rock's character goes back to the projects in New York City and hangs out with his old family and friends you know from back in the day right and they're going around swapping their uh, stories of their their different lists of their top five as some like uh, game of authenticity ones upsmanship does that sound right Matt yeah, yeah I mean it it is sort of um that that like uh you know there there are a lot of arguments about influence about authority and about primacy that get played out in a in a sublimated way in the naming of the top 5 the idea is that like i can name i can put people on my top 5 who are the the kind of the parents the influencers um of your of your top 5 and so my and so my taste is better and so my own authenticity is is uh is somehow better right yeah it's also speak to like some sort of like artistic purity and um connection to roots somehow right um and so when i just reeled off this uh list of five and with the potential added sixth uh female broadway singers right uh on one hand like i'm i'm trying i was trying to think of like the the type of artist that's like the furthest away from 
uh, hip hop artists from rappers, right? Um, in both in context of what uh, gender, in context of race, in context as well of the type of uh, music that they do, right? Um, but you know that that uh, you know on, on the surface level, those things might be true. They are uh, opposites or highly contrasted in those ways. And yet, like, why not? Like, why why can't these not be a top five of something? And why why not deprive them of any sort of uh, claim to authenticity? Right? It's a it is a different type of authenticity. I'm sure they are singing other people's um, other people's music, and um, you know, in an, in an art form that uh, say you know charges 100 bucks for a seat rather than um you know is is sort of swap freestyle in the housing projects of Brooklyn but there is a different type of authenticity to be found there so bam my top 5 <laughs> excellent uh so Jordan Stokes you are next what is your top 5 Adina Menzel so first of all first of all yeah right color, right <laughs> No, not actually with Mark's list of divas at all. Anyway, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, like, uh, look, yes, absolutely. Okay, like, here's my top five, right? Like, Judy, uh, you know, Judy Garland, right? Uh, Ethel Merman, you know, <laughs> Madalena, you know. There's, there's a Bernadette Peters. Did yeah, you Bernadette, Bernadette Peters. Peters Come on, yeah, even right, even people who whom you could have seen, whom you could have seen on the Broadway stage, right? Whom we could have seen given our generation. Uh, Dame uh, Edna is one of my top Broadway. <laughs> <laughs> but seriously, okay, my, my top not five, not much of a singer. <laughs> my, my absolute top five is The Hobbit, Fellowship of the Ring, Two Towers, Return of the King, Silmarillion, and of course, I'm talking about top five Tolkien books. That's right, Farmer Giles of Ham. You are dead to me. <laughs> what about the Lost Tales parts one and two, or whatever it's called? You know, like that stuff, Jordan. So wait, is that an order? Is the Silmarillion number five or number one? Um, you know what? Honestly, I wasn't thinking. I just went in chronological order. Um, really, I like The Hobbit best out of all of those, which I know is a, a juvenile thing, but maybe I'm juvenile. Can I, tell you, can I tell you something revealing? When, uh, when we were like, okay, we have to pick top five, I quickly I ransacked my head for things that there were only five of, so I wouldn't have to really commit to a position. <laughs> <laughs> and one of them is like major canonical works of Tolkien's Middle Earth that like are available in the public library of a school or something like that. That's <laughs> to like be the broader Tolkien because that's let's let's be honest, Tolkien it's something that drops way off, right? Like the Tolkien mythos, like the readability of the Tolkien mythos, like drops way off, like even before the Silmarillion, right? Like I mean, I'm not to say it's not to say it's not interesting, but it's just like so much less readable than The Hobbit, right? Like. uh or am I am I saying something bad in saying such a thing? No, no, I, th- I think you're right. Actually, you know, if I was going to really rank my Tolkien, I would kick the Silmarillion off and put in his um, his Beowulf essay, which is both more readable and more fun. Yeah, no, him and C.S. Lewis were like masters of old English literature. No, definitely that. that as a philologist, he's perhaps better than as a as a scripturist. What do you call? Is there a word for some a prophet? I suppose is like is there a word for someone who writes like scriptural work as as kind of a, as an occupation? Um, I guess prophet is probably one of them. I mean, bl- blogger. Oh, bl- okay, fair enough. This is live. <laughs> Fionor's hashtag Fionor uh-huh. hashtag hashtag Gondolil. Right. Make sure you tag all of those for SEO in the uh, you know in the tag section of yeah. the blog post. Jordan, how old were you when you went when you tore through Tolkien like a like a Los Angeles tornado? 
I don't even recall. I had The Hobbit read to me, probably at a slightly inappropriately young age, and uh, got really into it from there. Wait, what is racy or inappropriate in The, in the Hobbit? I mean, just like there's there's relatively complex language, right? Not like a chili pepper uh, young age, but like this is an adult situation because we're going to talk about, uh, you know, stagflation and the kids aren't <laughs> going to care about that much. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, the, the, uh, the, the, the difficulty, the search for yield that leads to real estate speculation in Mirkwood is just entirely unjustified, right? Like everybody knows that you're just sending good money after bad spiders. So you should just... <laughs> can, can we talk about the effect of, on monetary policy of all this Smaug's gold being released back into the economy? That's going to be disastrous, right? Well, I mean, you can go, Jordan. I hear you preparing because there are things to be said. Well, but, I think uh, it, would, it would really mess stuff up, you know? Like, there's, um, there's a fun Wikipedia page you can go and look at. A guy named uh, Mansa Musa, who was a, uh, a, a king of, like, Ghana or something like that, who made the, made the Hajj sometime in the High Middle Ages and, like, single-handedly by donating enough gold to charity on his way to Mecca like wrecked the entire economy of the Mediterranean <laughs> and then, <laughs> then on his way back had to like basically account for it basically by giving away more gold. <laughs> well, yeah, because because smog doesn't just take away, he doesn't just take money out of circulation. He also reduces the population and destroys capital investment, right? So it's right. like, so he's reducing the money supply, but at the same time, he's also reducing the overall capital present in the economy, both, and also its capacity for labor. So you could say that as he is sort of taking Dale out, he's actually doing Dale a favor by taking their money as well as burning it to the ground, right, when he first comes around. <laughs> When he's like taking, but then, then the issue of him coming back, like you know, let's say hypothetically that Smog is defeated in some sort of giant battle of the five armies. I'm not saying that's necessarily going to happen, but it's something that could potentially happen, right? Uh, and and that Smog's money is is released. Uh, I mean, getting past the mere logistical challenge of carrying all that crap out of the mountain, right? Which is another another huge deal because there's a huge shortage of manpower. But yet more people are dying. It's not like the the, the death of. I guess maybe the investment in the like military mobilization necessary to like deal with a territorial conflict around the the Lonely Mountain. You know, like maybe that's something that would provide some sort of. Uh, some sort of like goods or services basis for like having a larger enlarging the money supply, but yeah, other than that, you know, it's going to be uh, it's going to it's going to be inflationary. You see, I mean, you you see it as a, as a problem getting all the stuff out of the mountain. I see it as an opportunity for some good union jobs, you know, because uh, <laughs> I, see, I see it as an opportunity for middle class living for for hundreds, if not thousands, uh, of the residents of Middle Earth. Um, that that can you know uh, work get support their families you know uh, accrue benefits towards uh, an eventual dignified retirement. Um, yeah, because you, you, you know what tends to lead lead to a high standard of living is carrying by hand precious metals out of the insides of mountains. Uh-huh. <laughs> that's skilled. That's that's skilled labor, Pete. That's, it is. You know, it is not anyone Although can. In this case, it's literally just lying around, and large of it is in bowl form. <laughs> is there any chance? I mean, what was what was Smaug's point in collecting all the stuff? Is he just really into fiat currency and is trying to drain the the broader economy of specie in order to encourage its adaptation? <laughs> That's his desolation. That's what the desolation of Smaug is. Is it's it's the it's the, the it's the euro. <laughs> I, but I, I mean, I think it's a product of it being the last great fire drake of the third age, right? And it's like it's sort of a behavior that as its time has passed. 
he's you know he's a mercantilist in a world that won't have it no more. <laughs> um, all right, uh, I will close out our our question of the week. My top five is Title Five of the U.S. Code, which deals with government organization and employees. Uh, it it has three parts. Uh, what part one dealing with with the agencies generally, part two dealing with civil service functions and responsibilities, and part three dealing with employees of uh, government organizations. Uh, you know, I could go into every I could go into every um, chapter of each section of of Title V of the U.S. Code, um, but suffice it to say, it uh, it makes for some fascinating reading, and I, I recommend it to you highly uh, that you that you read about um, government agencies because you know there's a lot of lot of governing that gets done by the agencies and not by your. Uh, not by your elected officials, and and I, I think as a citizen, you owe it to yourself to uh, to read up on that sort of thing. Matt, Matt can can we clarify? So you interpret the question as you, you looked at all the things that are five of something in whatever shape, manner, or form, and you chose the single top of those things that are de- designated as five. Yeah, I mean the top five. You know, if it were. Uh if it were a top six, I would say it was my top six is definitely take six, the, Al- the acapella group. <laughs> but um, so, so wait, so are you saying that Title V of the U.S. Code beats Thomas Pynchon's five? I mean, that's well, such a great book. Tom, Thomas Pynchon's, Thomas Pynchon's uh, I think Thomas Pynchon's book is called V and, and isn't actually wait, the Roman numeral five. I think it's an initial and not a Roman numeral. Oh, that would explain Wait, why I can't find the first four in their library. <laughs> it's not the fifth book called Thomas Pynchon. Yeah. <laughs> Thomas Pynchon is a man, not a, not a series of books. Like he's not like Dark Man. He's like an actual person. I hear y'all, he's, he's y'all, mysterious, uh, like Dark Man. <laughs> y'all know that um, the movie that we got over here as the Madness of King George was in the UK, the Madness of George the Third, and they changed the title because test audiences were like, "I didn't see the first two Madnesses of King George." <laughs> <laughs> That movie was all right. I like that movie. There's the there's the blue the blue pea scene in that movie it was was pretty funny to me when I saw it when it came out, which dates the movie, right? So like it's like well let's see let's let's judge Pete by saying how old was Pete when he saw the Madness of King George? Okay, it's 1994, so I was 14 years old. So that's why I thought the blue pea scene was funny. Okay, I'm justified. That's fine. If it were 1998, it would start looking questionable. That that was the scene that I enjoyed the most out of that movie. But 1994, I think that's okay. So. You know, there's a lot of good. There's a lot of good scatological stuff, like royal scatological stuff. I remember that Bertolucci's The Last Emperor has a nice has a nice baby turd smelling scene. You know, mm. um, right? And and it, correct me if I'm wrong, Jordan, but as the as the parent of a young child, r- really the last thing you want to do with your young child is is smell their poop, right? The idea that it's a voluntary action of any kind, <laughs> just, it's not so bad. Actually, their poop doesn't smell as bad as most poop that you would come across in the world, but like you're going to smell it. <laughs> you don't need to take steps to smell it. <laughs> so wait, so, so speaking of everybody in the world smelling somebody's poop, uh, should we move on to our main topic of the day? <laughs> Let's that, is, that is an artisanally wrought segue. <laughs> <laughs> that is an artisanally wrought segue, if you... <laughs> Uh, Pete, why don't, why don't you cash out your segue a little bit? Oh, cash out my segue, but I'm using it to get to the Lincoln Memorial. No, so we were going to talk today. Well, first we wanted to talk about the movie Top 5, and we've done that to an extent, and maybe we'll pitch in a few more things. But we also wanted to talk about this crazy situation with Sony, right, where, um, I mean, I don't know. Maybe you guys can confirm for me whether this is something that is actually 
being substantiated, but the idea that the North Koreans hacked Sony, there was a giant hack at Sony where a bunch of their private emails and their private files, uh, particularly if for Sony Pictures are the ones that are getting lots of attention, were distributed over the internet. And there were some saying that it was done as retaliation by the North Koreans against Sony's, Sony producing the movie The Interview, in which James Franco and Seth Rogen uh, go on a mission to assassinate Kim Jong-un. Uh, this is, I think, the most bizarre government retribution I've ever seen, in that it is the only government retribution I've seen that involves Joel McHale getting a discount television <laughs> as like one of its major acts. But yeah, but there's I mean, just free, a- free television, right? I yeah, mean, like, he asked yeah. for discount television, but they gave him a free one. Yeah. 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 That's not, and, didn't ask for the super pricey one either. And so. and if ever you wondered about the integrity of Hollywood, read that email exchange, and it's just like, uh, just charge it, just charge the whole thing against Community. We'll figure it out later, yeah. right? Like <laughs> it'll all it'll all come out in the wash. Well, okay, so to go into that situation, we want to be in the McHale business. So what the deal was is the community was getting canceled, right? And community was being produced by Sony. And as long as Joel McHale is working for a show that's produced by Sony, Joel McHale has access to a Sony employee discount that he could use to buy a big screen television. And he had a particular big screen television he wanted. cost about $4,000. And he had talked to a producer about potential uh, with community, right? And they said to email this person with Sony. And they email with the person with Sony. And then the North Koreans swoop in and they get the email exchange in a coup, in a terrible coup that just says shat the West's confidence in itself, uh, but uh, or the East in this case, right? The East and the West, Sony and whatnot. But yeah, and then but then Sony was like, and then Joe McHale was kind of floating the idea that he might get it for free, right? And they they were sort of like, yeah, it's fine. We'll charge it against the show. It'll be fine. Presumably, there's an extra four thousand dollars around, which they could have used to make more community episodes, but they didn't. Um, instead, they used to gave Joel McHale television. Okay, um, so let me, let me jump into a couple of things. Yeah. One is that uh, in terms of the, the North Koreans' involvement in this, uh, again, Kim Jong Un is awesome, <laughs> Chosun Mansei, but all the evidence so far points to North Koreans doing this. They okay. have, um, you know, publicly disavowed any involvement with this, but said like, "Well, this is pretty cool that it's happening, and the interview should not be released." Um, so yeah, North Koreans are almost certainly behind this. Yes. Um, like, hang on, hang on. Is there evidence other than that they said that it wasn't bad that it happened? Yeah, the the they looked at the sort of the technical code behind it, and there are, like the the character encoding is in Korean, and I think there's other evidence that links it up to other North Korean cyber attacks as well. Um, there's no smoking gun per se, but there's plenty of other. Um, whatever other crime scene metaphor you want to apply. Yeah. I mean, the other, the other side of it is that, and th- this is part of what makes it kind of like not really all that shocking, is that Sony has been has a history, a recent history of large data breaches, particularly related sure. to PSN, yeah. PlayStation Network, where it seemed like, like, what was it, that they kept their passwords in a fo- folder marked passwords, and you just access the folder marked passwords to get the passwords to get into it, and it's just like, oh man, you know, why would you do that, right? Like, and it's just, it's just um, the idea that Sony has skimped on spending money on cybersecurity in certain ways, and this makes their 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 uh, their systems particularly easy to exploit and to get into. Yeah. So this is like the not not the first major hack against Sony yeah. even this year, yeah. but it was a huge one. But right? but the main story that like what we talk about when we talk about the Sony's picture hack is like this. Uh, awful airing of dirty laundry right we right. we are seeing all of the disgusting parts of the uh, sausage getting made the sausage being our tv entertainment uh that we love so much and and, and parts of us want to think as this wonderful myth making and storytelling and artistic process right we say oh it's terrible right who thinks so, that, uh, that I, I, that's a straw man come on <laughs> I, I think you're most okay children below the age of <laughs> 10 11 <laughs> 
Okay. Uh, yes, too young to this, read The Hobbit. All right. Once you're old enough to read The Hobbit, you're. I think of I think of Hollywood as a noble land with with with, with best in breed business practices and <laughs> a lot of integrity. Oh, okay. So one thing that clearly stains to get out there, right, is that any business, any company that gets its private or expected to be private communications just like thrown out into the public like this is going to come out looking bad. Oh, yeah. Right. Like, I don't care, like, if it's the most up and up company in the world, like you can take all sorts of uh, internal communications that are not expected to be leased out to the public. And you can just, you know, see all sorts of bad stuff in that and portray it out of context or portray it in context. And it still looks terrible. All this kind of stuff. Right. We're we're not really look terrible. We look ridiculous. Oh, my God. God. Oh, the things that I typed into our into our Slack back channel today. um, Those would be bad. well, that no, it really, I really, really, really wouldn't want our our emails to one another. Yeah. You know, yeah. because it's, it's so, a question. It's a question of content. Well, I'm not, I'm going to get back to this in a second. But yes, okay. okay so so this huge so that being established, right? But so now, like this information is out there and it's being treated as newsworthy, and I think appropriately so. Um, but. You know, we're here and we're talking about all this, like, these these crazy details that have been released about Sony's internal dealings, and um, they're not pretty. And we're trying to make some sense of them, right? We're trying to establish, we're trying to put them in context. We're trying to say what the significance is, and uh, you know what it's uh, again going back to the whole you know creative artistic process, like how it influences that, how it doesn't influence it, and also um, you know how great North Korea is and how uh, Kim Jong Un is pretty damn. Pretty damn, pretty damn good guy. Yeah. So all those things we should talk about. So, so let's have that. Okay. So so there there. I mean, whatever way it happened. I mean, whether it was North Korea or not, uh, whether whether it in fact was due to the to the release of the of the interview uh, around Christmas time or not. Um, this huge in- information of like internal company private Sony stuff. Um, and not even company private, some stuff that was probably confidential within the company, including people's salaries and people's uh, people's uh, private emails, but business emails. I mean, right? Like, because private is a term that I'm going to want to define, actually. And well, in, it goes beyond business emails to so like medical records, right? Well, I'm sure. Yeah, if they got like yes, and social security numbers and financial stuff and like insurance stuff and like all all kinds of stuff. But like, there's been a lot of attention, as you say, focused on the contents of the emails between the the executives and uh, especially Amy Pascal, who in you know uh, said a bunch of racist stuff in emails back and forth with Scott Rudin, joking about and specifically joking about what uh, movies they could talk to President Obama about at. A Hollywood fundraiser, right? Um, you know, and and asking if he, well, maybe we can talk about Lee Daniels the Butler, or did he like Django? Or talking about all the the quote unquote black movies and things like this, and and this is racist, and and it's absolutely racist. And Shonda Rhimes tweets about it, uh, it being an outrage, which you know, I it is uh, right. That's she's not wrong, Shonda Rhimes. But but here's my question, guys. I'm given to understand that it's wrong that I can see a naked picture of Jennifer Lawrence that was stolen from her phone, right? And that we shouldn't look at them and that we shouldn't write articles about them. We shouldn't post them online. We shouldn't write, like, make it fodder for uh, our our discourse, um, our discourse even, much less our titillation, right? Um, by By what twisted standard of uh of privacy is it 
like permissible uh right while maintaining that to maintain that like i absolutely deserve to know everything about uh the the um the emails between Amy Pascal and, and Scott Rudin, right? Like what is the argument for that not being equally um equally impermissible, you know, on grounds of of on grounds of privacy or or decency? Uh, that we don't like them personally. I, well, right, yeah. That they say, mean, that they said that, things that just... that they said things that don't comport with my politics, right? Like that 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 I find that racism, uh, you know, really horrible, and like, you know, um, but, but you know, I don't know. I mean, I, mean, I think the I mean the first. I, I mean, I. It's it's tough because I feel like I want to I want to engage your question, but I immediately want to sidestep it by asking another question. <laughs> but I feel like I want to. I mean, no, 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 go go for it. We can. I. It's okay. I'm strong enough to bring you all back to my question. I'm strong so, enough so, to bend this podcast to my will at the times so, when I feel like it. So like, there's a lot of the time where it's like, well, why is it okay to do this when it's not okay to do this? Sure. Right. And a lot of the time, it is in fact okay. the second thing, the thing that's like, well, it's not okay for me to do this. Then how come it's okay for everyone to do this? And it's like, well, actually, it would be okay for you to do that. Like, you know, it's it's sort of like, you know, a lot of people are sharing the naked pictures of the celebrities. A whole lot of them are doing it, and there's no retribution for it. So while we can all say that it's something that people shouldn't do and don't do, like that's all in kind of denial of the fact that it's something that people are doing, and in fact, not being punished. Yeah, but Pete, that's right? that's a little bit. I, I don't know. I think I think you are begging the question a little bit, right? Because oh, yeah. like the point is having a sense of the point. No one's going to get in in trouble. In fact, you probably, given the legal resources available to Sony Pictures Entertainment, you could get in more trouble, right? For for uh, sharing email for sharing Amy Pascal's emails uh, than you got into for sharing uh, a bunch of actresses' uh, naked pictures stolen from their phone. You know? Yeah. Um, I, th- I think what it, what it also raises is like, well, what's the mechanism wherein our morality or our ethics or our sense of what you should or shouldn't do intersects with the dissemination of information like how does the one act on the other in the first place right like how, how does it work because it's certainly it's not like it doesn't work at all there are certain aspects in which like these sorts of decisions are adjudicated by morality but in this particular case there doesn't seem to be any really pressing argument no, well there doesn't seem to be any argument that has any normative force on anyone's behavior right like there's not like you ought not to Post it, I guess. Right? I don't know. Like, I mean, like I, you know, my my Facebook feed is full of like full of salon articles that you know that tell me that I'm a sex criminal if I looked at the uh, the Jennifer Lawrence things, right? Like, so uh, so yeah. I mean, what is what is okay? Well, I mean, okay, I, I mean, you're, what we're talking about is like different different definitions of okay. So I I guess why may I why may I look at why may I look at a business person's uh, emails not intended for public consumption? Uh, without um, risking the censure of my peers and not look at something else that someone that wanted to keep private uh, that does risk the censure of my peers. I mean, I suppose the censure of my peers um, or the internal consistency of my of my ideals, though, you know, we all know what a joke that is. I suppose that's the stakes of this game, right? Like not not like I'm going to be manacled and dragged off to, you know, dragged off to some sort of prison for for uh, doing something against the law and the law is you know enforced such that like anyone who clicks like on facebook gets uh gets Im- immediately jailed you know so so one thing that we should at least get out of the way and i'm hoping this isn't the only reason because it's a pretty boring one 
is that, uh, you know, people will shame you for sex no matter what it is. For instance, if you were to say, so, uh, what did I do today? Uh, well, I went to, I went to the 7-Eleven and I asked for one of the magazines that they keep behind the counter where they have, you know, legally obtained email chains from major mo- motion picture studio heads. And I read that in a Starbucks and discussed <laughs> it with, uh, with everyone, like, that was sitting at the table with me. That would not, have people saying, wow, you're kind of a creepy dude. I don't really want to be your friend anymore. Whereas if you did it for the, you know, you, you see where I'm going with this. I don't need to take this metaphor all the way down, waving my hat over head, slim picking style. <laughs> yeah, the idea being that, like, that if we're talking about the censure and shaming that you get from peers, there's a particular bout of that that's associated with sex and sexuality, regardless of whether it's good sex, bad sex, willing sex, unwilling sex, like anything that's like that is going to be in creep town. Right. Yeah, it's it's uh it's like magnetism, right? That uh, there's a moral censure attached to it anyway. Um, I do think that there's probably a very legitimate case to be made for saying that, like the the naked picture thing is a different kind of moral wrongdoing than these email threads but whatever iota of it that there is there the fact that it's about sex at all uh makes everyone get sort of you know hyperventilate about it oh, right and yeah. that's i mean and that's that's true of the of my my peers the right thinking progressives uh i think as well and it's i mean it's a common sort of sea lioning of of you know a, a common sort of lioning of, of feminism to uh, call it prudish, right? And and uh, while I, you know, while what does sea lioning mean? Well, can you oh, just clarify what I'm is gonna the put, sea lion something? I'm going to put. Uh, uh, I'm going to put up. Uh, j- sorry, I'm googling it. The greatest. Um, I'm going to put up the greatest uh, internet cartoon. Um, so uh, there was a uh, an, an online comic called Wondermark. Uh, and uh, it ran a strip that uh, featured two people talking um, and someone uh, and a man and a woman. And the woman says to the man, I don't mind most marine mammals, but sea lions I could do without sea lions. And the man says, oh, God, don't say that out loud. And in the next panel, a sea lion has uh, edged his way into the frame and says, pardon me, I couldn't help but over here. I'd like to have a civil conversation about your statement. Would you mind showing me evidence of any negative thing, any sea lion ever has done to you uh there's no and and the woman says go away the sea lion replies there's no need to raise your voice i'm right here i'm just curious if you have any sources to back up your opinion anyway right so it's it's about like sea lioning is a particular kind of arguing in bad faith and uh derailing um accusations of of various kinds of structural oppression uh and it came it came up a lot around gamergate when god uh, just don't say it three times or it'll appear uh, in our common thread, right? Like, um, I like how we're more scared of Gamergate than of Kim Jong Un. <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering, is, is there any way that we could like sick them on each other? You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think in the Hobbit, he, what does he do? He has them argue till sunrise, right? Uh, if we could get that to happen, they both turn to stone, then that might be to everyone's advantage. <laughs> so, um, so the idea, the idea is a, it's a kind of discussion in bad faith, um, aiming at at sort of derailing or silencing a critic. In the uh, while purporting to uh, engage in civil discourse, right? And and you know one of the most common, I mean, I I I find in this um, it, uh, around the celebrity nude photo theft 
leaks, uh, right? Like the, um, the one of the most common uh, things from people who wanted to defend the position that that they ought to, that they ought to be able to disseminate these things without the censure of of others uh, was, well, you're just prudish, you're just yeah, uh, you're just repressed, and so my my uh, my point is that right, like in in. A, a lot of the times when when you know uh when people object to um destructive or you know uh, uh harmful manifestations of anything having to do to do with sex uh on feminist grounds their position is mischaracterized as as being sort of puritanical and that's you know i don't want to uh i i don't want to sort of run afoul of that you know of that particular uh common no, no, no. You know, common thing, but I think Jordan. I think Jordan is right, right? Like anything that anything that that regards you know your your anything that regards your junk, right? Is is going to just attract is going to just attract censure uh, because it has a lot to do with um, it has a lot to do with with guilt uh, and with you know uh, cultural biases about that. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so guys, can I can I try to give a succinct and somewhat serious. Um, answer to this question about why uh, you know sharing nudie pictures of Jennifer Lawrence is bad, while um, uh, you know like reviewing the leaked emails from Sony is more acceptable. Sure, go for okay. it. Okay, so here's the thing: we talk a lot about power dynamics on this show, right? And about how um, like power dynamics play into discourse and sort of like what um, uh, and, and our sense of like what is appropriate or what is not, right? When, we, when we're talking about celebrities, uh, particularly female celebrities leaked pictures it takes it, it takes it is takes place in the context of uh gender power dynamics in which men um use the female body um to their advantage and treat the female body as a uh, commodity of sorts um and disrespect it right um and so that's sort of what's going on when um and uh dudes uh, share pictures of jennifer lawrence uh naked and you know and and, and it sort of say that that's okay Right now, power dynamics for a Sony Pictures hack is very different in that Sony is a huge multinational corporation with billions and billions and billions of dollars of revenue, and are seen as sort of you know overlords and uh, incredible power holders of power in pop culture. Um, and because we are the sort of the everyman, and uh, we are um, mere ants uh, uh, in the footsteps of the giants of, picture, of folks like Sony Pictures, um, we can. Um, you know, take this advantage to uh, mock them in this moment of weakness because typically they are such powerful overlords against us. Now, I know there's a bunch of ways to argue against that, but I'm just going to put that out there um, as a discussion starting point for for the discussion. But what you're saying is you have to look at the mechanics of the of what you're saying has something to do with sort of punching down, right? Like, yeah, yeah. right. Like you have to look at the mechanics of, of the oppression. And if, if someone is in the sort of subordinate position, yep. their, their exploitation is not, uh, defensible. Uh, whereas if someone is in the super or uh, superordinate position, um, their exploitation may serve desirable political ends. Right. Yeah. 
but that I, I, you're you're into a uh, you're into a sort of ends justifies the means kind of rat hole there. Uh, or slippery slope there. I'm, I'm I know. I, total, I, mean, I totally get that and recognize it, which is why I'm I'm hedging that statement there. And I'm not and, willing to totally. And it. by the way, it's so bad, right? It's so bad that you almost don't know. You almost don't know who to root against, right? Yes, Amy Pascal is saying racist things in email. Yes, she's you know mouthing off about colleagues and and um, all kinds of stuff. Uh, on the other hand, right when the salary spreadsheet came out and you saw everybody's salary, she was the only woman out of a dozen people at Sony making more than a million dollars a year or something like that, right? Like uh, there, there was this, um, there was this gender bias in in uh, pay inequity uh, in, within the company, right? And right, and so there's, you know, there is a sort of different um, me- mechanic of. Uh, different mechanic of a kind of structural, um, uh, you know, a structural unfairness built in, built into that. You sort of can't, um, you sort of can't hang your hat anywhere in this, uh, yeah. and and all you can do is wave it over your head, slim picking style. Can I? Uh, I have another way of looking at it that I think this doesn't address the question of whether these things actually are right or wrong, but maybe goes some some distance to explaining the reason we think about them the way that we do think about them, uh, which is that here's the here's sort of the, the whole of it, and then I'll, I'll unpack what this means. We assume that we have a strong moral right not to have our leaked electronic files looked at by others, right? Not have them retreated retreated, retweeted, uh, blogged about, etc. If the content of that leaked material is something that we have a intuitive right to keep private, um, meaning that everyone would agree, oh, you have the right to keep that private. Therefore, we shouldn't be spreading it around once it gets leaked to us. So, for instance, we have the right to keep private what our genitals happen to look like. I'm very happy that I have this right. Uh, we also have the right to keep our medical records private. And here's where I think the um, this sort of sidesteps the punching up, punching down thing, because if, like, Barack Obama's medical records or Donald Trump's medical records or whatever were leaked, I think that we would all agree that it's really bad to be tweeting those around and sharing them with people, even though these are very, very powerful men. Um, we have the right to keep our, our financial arrangements private and so on. However, and this is where I think it maybe gets a little interesting, a racist email exchange, so a, a terrible personal opinion expressed privately to a friend who shares that opinion or who is creating a safe space for you to have that terrible opinion in, is not something that we as a society believe that you have an intuitive right to actually keep private. That, uh, you know, that that actually should be brought to light, that you don't have the right to even be racist behind closed doors. And therefore, no one is going to get up in arms about the fact that a private email is being shared if that's what the content of it is. Hmm. Right. Which, of course, then kind of gives people Well, because yeah, I mean, that's what it is. It's like people decide people decide whether or not something it was right to share something after it's been shared and after they see what it is. Right. There's not. And that's what I was saying before. I wasn't trying to justify before the morality of sharing this stuff. I was saying that, like, the moral action comes after the sharing, like the people make their judgment about whether sharing it was right or wrong after the market for ideas has dictated without any moral intervention, whether or not it's going to get distributed to people. Yeah. I mean, we left behind morality in file sharing back with Napster. You know, like, that's gone. You know, like... 
Go ahead. I do. I do think that you could you could potentially head it off at the pass. That like if I were to uh, to come in and ask you guys, hey, I've got this hard drive which contains this. Should I put it on BitTorrent? You would be able to make the judgment based on the description of it rather than actually have it be shared first, right? I mean, we could. Right, yeah, and I mean, like, right. The idea, the the idea is that these things were shared uh, in order to do harm, in order to do economic harm to the company, probably. And you know, the pe- the people whose careers are harmed or whose privacy, the the many many employees. I mean, stepping away from the from the executives. Though, though, I want to get back to that. Like, I want to get back to these terrible opinions, actually, in a second. Right, like uh, stepping away from the executives. Um, the the. Uh, you know all the people whose whose privacy was violated right these these are kind of collateral damage of a uh of a manifestly malicious um the action that would that was meant to meant to cause harm right and so i think that probably bears on the moral calculus as well because to the extent that we to the extent that we uh disseminate these things we are participating in the agency of the you know of the people who stole them in the first place uh who want these things linked um in order to bring pressure to bear on the company so so l- let me talk about I mean let me talk about these things right like uh the these sort of racist opinions and I'll 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 sort of put myself on the line right like um if if you don't allow a space in your life not to be your best self right if if you sort of see your worst moments, you know, dredged out and sort of paraded in front of people, uh, and you now have to run your life um, imagining that the harsh light, you know, the harsh light of public scrutiny were focused on you at all times. Um, I think we're, we're... headed towards a world that none of us wants to be, none of us wants to be a part of, right? Like, uh, I, you know, as, as, you know, offensive as I find, uh, as offensive as I find racism, I also think there's, there's, there's a context in which, in which it's expressed, right? Like, and that context was, was private and something uh, sort of penetrating into that, uh, penetrating into that privacy, um, though it reveals information that I find uh, doesn't comport with my politics and that I find uh, distasteful and offensive, um, the the penetration itself. Oh God, I need a better word. The the um, the sort of intrusion itself into an exchange that had was in the context of of being private between two people. I think takes us down a road that none of us wants to wants to go on because you know uh no matter my my sisters and brothers right no matter how righteous your progressive politics there was a day when you weren't your best self you know there has been uh, a time in your life where you have done something that you are not uh that you don't now uh, endorse or that you wouldn't endorse in public or that you would disavow in public. Right. And if all that stuff 
no matter how how subaltern or how powerful you are, if all that stuff is now fair game, right? Uh, we are, you know, I don't know. We're we're in a danger zone, I think. Uh, and well, I want to. I want to. I'm just going to Google while you while you respond, Jordan. I'm just going to Google the story of of uh, the Ring of Gyges for a second. So I I totally agree, uh, but I think that there's two qualifications that I want to make. They're sort of the same qualification. Um, one is just kind of a, a slippery slope argument, which says that you're imagining it sliding one way, but it can slide the other way. Um, the other one might be a little bit more nuanced, and I'll get to it in a bit. But another uh, leak of private information that came out recently is that uh, some some clever hackers on the internet managed to figure out that a bunch of people involved in a fundraiser for the legal defense of, uh, of the, the, the Ferguson shooter, the policeman, right, turned out to be members of the Ku Klux Klan. And you might say, huh. well, if, if those hoods are going to be removed and this private organization where they, they made these, these statements which were not their best selves, like, who are, who are we to take those hoods off? I don't think anyone would, would agree with that, right? Um, so, again, you get into this thing where it's like, well, okay, there's some kinds of private opinions, some kinds of private behavior that it's totally fine if it gets leaked on the internet, Right, and then there's some kinds that aren't, and then at that point you're just—we've already established what kind of girl you are. We're just debating about the price, right? right? Yeah. Um, the other, but like maybe a, a more nuanced way of thinking about this is that. So there's lots of opinions that you can't say in public, that you will say in private to friends knowing that this is not something that you actually believe. And it could be just a joke, right? Like, context can take it that far. Or it could be something where, like, on some level you do believe this, but you don't endorse it. And in public, you make this great effort to actually be a good person, but every now and then it's nice to be able to let the slide down, let the slide down, let the, uh, your guard down, and say this thing that, uh, that you don't endorse about yourself, and, you know, shout out the, the horrible opinion, right? Like, go into therapy and, and shout to your therapist, I, I hate my entire family or whatever like that. Um, and, and you wouldn't want that shared because it is a, a non-endorsed opinion, right? Presumably the clan members actually endorse their racism. So you might then say that that's the difference, that these aren't people who are slipping for a minute and need that place to not be perfect. These are people who actually think that their public face is not perfect, and this private monstrosity is the perfect version of themselves, and that doesn't deserve the same kind of defense. Right. Um, yeah, fair enough. I mean, I think that the sort of the extent to which you would advocate for the position publicly might, you know, uh, might be a factor weighing weighing in the thing. And this is not right. Like, it's funny. We started this talking about uh, um we started this talking about Chris Rock and top five. And one of the, one of the things that Chris Rock has said in all the press that he's done, um, you know, that was sort of applauded as, as a instance of speaking truth to power, right. Is that Hollywood is a white industry. Right. And, you know, uh, I, I guess I could see, I mean, I could see the, the, um, even even if you if you are willing to allow that there is some kind of like blowing off steam uh in the racist sentiments uh ex- expressed in these emails um 
if you are, even if you are willing to allow that, uh, right, you can say that 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 racism, that sort of occult racism, is uh, part of the force um, systematically keeping people of color out of the industry, right? And, uh, you know, depriving them of jobs or depriving them of, of opportunities. Um, and this is something that, that Chris Rock, you know, uh, calls out in really specific detail, uh, in a really incisive and, and insightful way. And some of the, you know, and I'm going to link up some of the, uh, the Frank Rich piece and the, the Hollywood Reporter piece, uh, the essay that he wrote it's it, they're well worth the time that it takes to read them um and that like so uh right so so who what i mean i it's it's difficult i'm sort of wrapping myself in knots trying to formulate a coherent opinion about it but but um you can say that this that though private and though these individuals wouldn't um uh, wouldn't endorse these positions publicly or wouldn't, wouldn't advocate for them publicly and actually might advocate against them, uh, in the public arena, um, you know, by, by actually giving money, lots and lots of it to the black president who's, um, or to his campaign, uh, the black president whose taste in movies they're mocking, right? Like, um, that this position is part of a, is part of a, uh, the functioning of a systematized oppression um, that is, you know, uh, depriving people of depriving people of, uh, you know, livelihoods and depriving people of opportunities. And that for that for that reason, even if they wouldn't advocate for it uh, in the public square, um, the uh, the operation of their the the operation of their business in the environment of structural racism uh makes it politically expedient to call out the uh to call out the racism expressed in a in a, in a private communication but again i feel like i'm on a i feel like i'm on a slippery slope right i feel like you're, you're also looking at this a little bit narrowly by just talking about the emails that are about racism because most of this leak is not about racism you know most of it, a lot of it is about like venal backbiting right um and, and i think that like and we are – it's kind of interesting how we're avoiding – we're actually the only people who are kind of avoiding talking about what's in the leaks on these moral grounds, which I think is also in, in – I'm not – I'm sorry. I didn't mean – I didn't mean to leak shame you. <laughs> well, I'm just, I'm just saying like this is all well and good, Matt, but it's not going to change anything. Nobody cares, right? Like nobody cares that it's wrong. And then that's and that, it's it's like nobody and it's like it's like like listen to, like listen to what's being said and I, and I'm, I'm I'm not saying that it's not right, but it's like if people are actually making this suggestion, look, by even even going back to the naked picture stuff, it's like look, by sharing the picture of Jennifer Lawrence, you are oppressing Jennifer Lawrence. Do you really think that's going to change anybody's behavior? It's like I'm just a schlub. She's famous, right? Like how do I feel like I'm in a position of authority or power? Well, systematically you are, right? Well, it's like you, you don't change people's behavior by explaining the broad systematic effects of what they're doing. Like there has to be some sort of connection with their own lives about how they're interacting with these things. So, I, I mean, I think this is part of the big disjuncture, which is the, the big, big disjuncture here between the ex post facto shaming of people for their role in like broad abstract social things versus like the reality of how these things are disseminated, right? And I think that, that – from my perspective, one of the conversations that's useful to have is like, okay, let's assume that anything that gets out there, even a little bit, that anybody is interested in, is going to be shared, right? 
what are the values and how should our morality change with the understanding that these sorts of things are going to be things that people find out about. Right. Right. You know, and then, I'm sorry, I get a little bit agitated because I feel kind of like helpless. It's like, yeah, like I just feel like just sort of ignoring what it's doing is that it's driving people subaltern, which is fine. You know, because it's part of the battle, right? The idea is that, like, the oppressors should have their voice taken away, and they should be rendered subaltern, and they should be rendered subordinate to the oppressed who will now be in charge, right? This is like old presbyters, new priests at large. Your feelings and thoughts are irrelevant because you're wrong and you're bad, and the thing that you're doing is oppressive. So, so, so we're not going to stop you. We're not going to, to, like, punish you. We're just going to, like, pretend that what you're doing either isn't happening or is somehow invalid, despite the fact that it is happening on a wide scale, right? We're going to, like, we're going to imagine a silence of it. We are going to, like, paint a silence. We're going to, like, create a hush, right? Which it doesn't exist, right? There's still, like, the Sony leaks are all over the place, you know, like... Um, and, and sure, Scott. Scott Rudin's calling Angelina Jolie a spoiled brat in the you know on on millions of screens across the country, right? Right, right, right. And so, like, I'm. I feel like Joel that, McHale's that getting it, his free TV. Yeah, and they, I mean, so it's like on one hand, yes, I I know, like, and I, I really agree that yes, I think I think what one of the things you said that really jumps out at me as being important is like. You know, we all have parts of us that are like this. And I think that we all have hidden things. What The Onion has a great article about like 100% of Americans lead secret lives, right? Like there are all of us have things that we would be ashamed of if people were to find out about them. So for me, what this says is, is hey, we should try to adjust our own morality so that the way that we think it is good to live can account for the fact that everybody is like this. Right, like it's like how do you how do you live as a good human being with the open knowledge that everybody is flouting all of the rules about how to live? You know, like like what is the good life if it isn't anywhere? Well, this I mean, this is what uh, like I think I've said this on this podcast before. Like naively, when I was a teenager, I you know I was involved in like BBSs and and you know modem stuff and and early internet stuff. Um, or I, I suppose it wasn't early internet stuff, early World Wide Web stuff. Um, and and I sort of saw the trends and and read Wire you know Wired magazine back in the early nineties and stuff and and like uh, saw the trends and like I naively assumed that this would lead to a great flowering of empathy uh, and, you know, uh, fellow feeling, right? I, think, For- I mean, I think it has, right? People care about each other's dinners more than they ever have in the history of the world. <laughs> All the, don't pretend that those cats aren't out there. Everybody loves those dogs and cats. You know, they're, they're, you, know you take the good, you take the bad, right? Like there is, I think there is a great flowering of empathy that's out there. Love actually is all around people, right? Like it's, it's you know, you look out on the Facebooks and it's families and babies and yeah we get mad about the babies but it's like you know i mean maybe not everybody jordan i'm not mad about jordan no i don't know i you see and i don't like i i i think that's all crap (laughs) you know what f your cat right like f your f your happy family right like f your instagram of a you know of a latte next to your macbook pro like getting work done you know hashtag killing it f you killing i'm you know i'm killing your success theater right like the empathy and fellow feeling happens not not, not when we're engaging in success theater, right? The real empathy and fellow feeling is, right, is, is when we're uh, exposed as the pathetic wretches that we are, right? Like, the real empathy and fellow feeling happens in, in, the, moments of, uh, in the moments of shame, right? Not in the moments of, of uh, you know, pride and sort of staged, uh, staged success. Um, but, and so, oh, yeah. 
there's also empathy and fellow feeling when you join a mob to tear someone else down. I mean, what is a mob but empathy and fellow feeling with the other members of the mob? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I guess I guess I had hoped that as we, you know, as the Internet revealed that uh, as the Internet revealed that, hey, we're actually not so different after all, you know, we we would gradually expand the expand the the mob in concentric in concentric circles around us until our mob was capacious enough to, uh, you know, encompass all living things. And it yet may happen. You know, there are definitely people that I feel empathy for that I can, like, think of in discrete individuals um, that, absent the Internet, I would never have felt empathy for, right? Um, but, but who knows? Prognostication is a, is a mugs game. I do want to, um, to walk back against the argument that, that Pete was making about how... With, with regard to this particular thing, saying, oh, this is wrong, this is bad, what you're doing is bad, is pointless because people are doing it anyway. Um, because I think that that's... Your, your complaint is not with this. It's with moral philosophy in general, right? Clearly. Yeah. Because, I mean, what, what was the point in Socrates saying, well, really, we should just love the good, when in fact everyone was going to love money and power, right, uh, anyway? Um, but then you have to... You have to have the, the honesty to stand up and say that you therefore think that all of Socrates' moral philosophy had no effect on later society um, in order to claim that the hemming and hawing over this is not just as potentially useful as anything that Socrates did, don't you? Mm-hmm. I think I think you're right to point out that there's some inconsistency here, and I I think there is a role. I'm, I think there is a role for this sort of shaming. I just think it's 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 important to recognize that it's not really related. Hey, don't don't shame shame me, Pete Fenzel. <laughs> no, I think you're. I think I think part of why I chafe against it is that so much of the ethical condemnation of this sort of stuff is very consequentialist. The the idea being that like you know it is wrong for us to do these things because it is bringing about an outcome that is that I, we've judged to be like an inferior or undesirable outcome, and it's like well yeah but. If you care about, but like the, sh- the sharing of this information with everybody isn't going to affect the outcome, right? Like I feel like the the idea that the the, the way that the moral philosophy seems to become so disjointed from the, its ability to either predict or guide outcomes says to me that like maybe a consequentialist ethic isn't the way to go about ethics, right? Like you know maybe it's like maybe we can respect not doing it, you know? I don't. Know. So it's like maybe the maybe the consequences of these sorts of things should be more along the lines of like you know I mean then of course then you get like Uncle Tom's Cabin stuff where it's like well really slavery is bad because it's bad for you as the slaver and it's like well no you know that's obviously nonsense obviously slavery is bad because the consequences of slavery right like you get into um, this this weird kind of like um, leapfrogging consequentialist thing right like it's it's very easy to make the case that um, that stealing people's naked photos is wrong uh, because of the consequences of that. But then if you are one random person on the internet, you're going to think, well, this is happening anyway. It's not going to make a difference if I do it, right? Don't blame right, me. Right. I voted for Kodos, that sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, so therefore, uh, from sort of an abstract level, you might say, perhaps I could reach that person if I were to do a non-consequentialist ethics and say that there's a, a deontological reason or a virtue ethics reason why uh, why you shouldn't do it. Or just to, like, you know, use every logical and rhetorical fallacy in the book and appeal to their emotions and make them just feel really bad about it and stop doing it that way. Maybe if I did that, then as a consequence, people would do this less. So you end up sort of utilitarian all the way down, but there are little slices of it where 
in the argument that you're having being utilitarian about it might be counterproductive. Right. So, so, but so, are you saying? Are you are you saying that? Arguing from any sort of uh, of a deontological or value based thing, you're ultimately going to be in service of a consequence. Uh, and well, so- I think it's very hard to get away from that. Um, yeah. Not necessarily impossible, but like it's. I'm not the first person to say this that like people are in fact utilitarian, whatever they claim to be, um, because you always end up justifying it by an appeal to consequences. Is something that is floating around out there, and like for me, that sort of makes sense until I hear it disproved, at least. Mm, interesting. Yeah, and it's interesting. Uh, gosh, I mean, well, okay. So here's here's something sort of. Uh, it's a little bit sideways, but it's like, what about what about when you're talking about the virtue ethic discussion, right? Um, so so recently, I was talking to my girlfriend, and she was taking. And this is a little bit of a side subject, but we're kind of talking about broad philosophy here. So she she was studying uh, educational administration, right? And she read a book on educational administration, which was an ethics book that presented an ethic two educational administrators, which was a virtue ethic, right? It was like, these are the qualities that a leader should have in order to be effective at leading through seemingly intractable educational problems, right? The idea is like, you can't fix your budget, you can't fix the system, you can't make everything better. How can you be a good leader in these kinds of circumstances? It's very hard, right? And And the appeal to a virtue ethic, and I had a big problem with it because it's like, well, virtue ethics are based on your own happiness, Right, like that's your goal, right? In in like in Aristotle, well, goal of virtue ethic is like eudaimonia, right? And it's like your own your state of contentment and your state of kind of fulfilling your your purpose as a human being of achieving the good life and this sort of degree of happiness. Yeah, yeah. I mean, happiness is maybe a reductive translation, oh, yeah, but pretty is, yeah. much, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so then you have you know you have religious virtue ethics, which are based again in a self interest in the sense of kind of oneness with God, oneness with holiness, divinity, that level of sort of personal satisfaction that's associated with feeling good about being good, right? And it's sort of still an important to have some sort of rooting like that in the basis of our virtue ethic. But um, is so so that so, is also a yeah. But but your right? your point with the thing is like. Uh, Good institutional outcomes is not the point of a virtual a virtue ethic, right? right. Like right. good good institutional outcomes uh, uh, under adverse institutional circumstances uh, is is a consequentialist ethic and not a virtue ethic. Yeah, yeah, the virtue, the, the good, that virtue, the good, the social good that comes from virtue ethic is almost incidental to the main purpose of virtue ethic, which is individual good for yourself. So it's like, is there a way of saying, hey, you shouldn't share these naked pictures, you shouldn't share these Sony leaks because it because there's something about you that there's something about your own personal enjoyment of your life, or there's some part about how you, some outcome for you yourself that should be something you should be concerned with, right? Rather than like, oh, there, there's like a social reason. But then again, it's like, well, of course, there's a big question of like, well, should you care about Aristotle versus more Marxist sorts of ways of looking at the world? I mean, like, there's a lot of aristocrats that are very happy with virtue ethic, right? There's a lot of like, so then if you're really concerned with the oppressor, I think, I think that the, the degree to which contemporary public discourse is really keyed around the discourses of oppression has more effects on the kinds of moral arguments that we bring up around things like this than we like to admit. And it kind of restricts us a little bit in our, in our thinking about how it could be moral or how it could be immoral. I don't know. I'm saying a lot of things. No, that's a good – I mean that's a good well, point, right? Because – on this thing because Jordan's always better than me about this stuff. But anyway, go ahead. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, right, the, because like uh, the, the sort of terms of the debate, right, the tools uh, – um, <laughs> Right. The the oppressed tools will never <laughs> dismantle the oppressed house. Right. Is what <laughs> is what you're saying. Um, or or are you saying that dost thou think because thou art virtuous, there shall be no no more cakes and McHale? 
<laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> I mean, that's the other big argument, right? Um, uh, which is basically like, you know, human being, you know, is, is there something actually kind of desirable about people having pro- like moral failings? Right, like, or, or like, I mean, what is that quote actually saying? Because it's like one of my favorite quotes, right? Like, or quotations, right? It's, uh-huh. it's just from, from, uh, from, from Twelfth Night, right? Where it's like, you know, do, do you really think that this is going to have an, is, is it saying, does it, you think what you're saying is going to have an effect on the way people behave, right? Or is there something kind of phenomenological about cakes and ale as like moral institutions? Because we're rooting for Toby Belch, for Sir Toby Belch. <laughs> sure. Right? Like, want Sir Toby Belch to be right. We like Sir Toby Belch, right? Like, but liking and wanting and rooting for are not the basis for, for, for a value system, right? I mean, I don't know. <laughs> uh... We'll, we'll, if you don't know, uh, Act Two, Scene Three of of Twelfth Night, we're going to put that into uh, we're going to put that into the show notes, and you can read it and um, and indeed the whole play because it's it's another one. It's it's longer than Chris Rock's articles, but again, it's well worth your time. Uh, we're coming up on we're coming up probably on on our time here. I I mean the thing that I take away. The thing that I take away from this is is that like um uh and and I there's a whole other conversation I I want to have about like uh about this sort of distorting effects that that you know the presence of uh, of oppression has on other people in society who are not who are not the targets of oppression because you know no man is an island entire of himself and and so on um but uh I think that we're uh we're probably out of time for that sort of thing and I I just I I kind of want to highlight the uh I want to highlight the like the difficulty of uh, forming a, a coherent opinion around around these things. I mean, right and like the fact that we want to go back to uh, the story of Gaiji's ring, you know what I'm going to put the guy uh, uh, the story of the ring of Gaiji's about um about justice in uh, in the show notes as well, um, and the fact that we're going back there is, is sort of uh, is an indication of how intractable these problems are to to Aristotle and to uh, to the history of moral philosophy. So I don't know. Let me make a plea <laughs> with you to uh, try to have that great flowering of empathy and fellow feeling <laughs> within yourself to, you know, to the people you debate with, um, to debate all these, you know, contentious political issues with online. <laughs> oh, Matt, you're so naive. Um, so, uh, hey, it's Christmas time, and Christmas time means gift guides. Uh, so many gift guides online that it's become kind of a joke about uh, blogs and podcasts and things like this supporting themselves with the affiliate links in gift guides and how they uh, how they only make lists of products so that you'll click on them and, and uh, get a kickback. Um, but no, we are very sincere. Our hearts are pure. Uh, our eudaimonia is, is assured and secure. Um, in our uh, gift guide on overthinking where you can click on product links uh, and if you buy something from Amazon give us a small uh, give us a small kickback just don't think about the consequentialist uh, ethics of buying things from Amazon um, you can- <laughs> yeah don't go anywhere near that Jesus Christ <laughs> really really leave that leave that it alone. starts at you've got mail and it just gets worse from there so. 
<laughs> so let's, uh, yeah, uh, right. Yeah, in this time of empathy and fellow feeling in this season of holidays, uh, spare no thought for your for your neighbor in the fulfillment warehouse. Um, think instead of the four percent that overthinking it will get on anything you buy from Amazon. So we appreciate it that people have been using our gift guide as a point of entry into Amazon and buying either the things we recommend, which actually sincerely are things that we like and uh, enjoyed this year and think that you will like as well. Um, And uh, uh, whether they buy those or buy other things, uh, if you enter Amazon through our links, we will get a kickback. It's a very important promotion for us. And thank you for participating uh, in it. As I'm fond of saying, we know you have a choice of affiliate links around Christmas time, and we're very glad that you uh, choose to use hours um we'll be back next week with more overthinking it podcast until then you can visit us on the web at overthinkingit.com where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve hey samantha it's harvey go gators Guys, I know we talked about controversial things, but can we at least all agree that short ribs are awesome and Kim Jong-un should have a long, glorious reign over the Democratic People's Republic of North Korea? I think they're called vertically challenged ribs. If, if someone accuses me of cow oppression, <laughs> uh, it's not going to affect my eating habits. <laughs> <laughs>